Good morning. morning. Welcome to The Orchard. We are in our Exodus series, week two. And I'm so glad you are a part of what we're doing here, whether you are joining us in the house, online, or in podcasts later on. And when it comes to Exodus, and especially where we are in chapter two, there is so much to cover. And I leave each week with just so much left that I cannot get to. And I want to encourage you once again to try our Tuesday night Bible study. It's a a going deeper Bible study, and Richard Rogers, a friend of mine, is leading that. And you're going to be studying these actual same texts that we're talking about today to go a layer below that to see how you in your life can do the deep dive to find out more about what God, what's in God's word. And so I would encourage you to go and uh, find the community and, uh, and, and the truth in those two tonight's studies. Um, I'm excited about this series and where God's going to take us. And today is kind of a tee up for what's going to ha- happen next week, which um, is going to be a, a pretty big revelation of what God does. But today, um, there's something for each of you. We were just singing, I want a fresh, fresh fire. And, uh, and for many of us, we come to a place like this or we're listening, saying, God, would you, would you breathe something new in me? More faith. I need forgiveness. I need whatever it would be that you need. I'm praying that God would move in your life today. In Exodus 1, we just re- we went over last week, we found that the Israelite people were in Egypt and they became many. They multiplied and became powerful. And Pharaoh there, the Egyptian Pharaoh, he did not like that. And so he said, we need to do something about that problem. And he, he made them into slaves to keep them under control. But despite everything he did, the Israelites continued to multiply and thrive. And so he did something else. He deputized every single Egyptian citizen in the killing of Hebrew male babies. He says that if any baby is born in a Hebrew household, you are allowed and commissioned to go in there and take that male baby and throw it into the Nile. And that is where we start today in Exodus 2. About this time, a man and woman from the tribe of Levi got married. Now we know this is the father and the mother of Moses. And we find their names in Exodus 6, Amram and Jacobed. We also know that Moses had an older sister named Miriam and an older brother named Aaron. Aaron was likely born before this uh, order had gone out to kill the male babies. Moses, however, is born right in the midst of this terror. Verse 2. The woman, Jacobed, that is, became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Son is Moses. She saw he was a special baby and kept him hidden for three months. Now, the word here for special in your translation or many translations is beautiful. And it's interesting that Moses is the author here, and he wants you to know he was a beautiful, special little boy. (laughs) He was precious in his mommy's eyes. Now, if you could write your own book, how would you describe yourself when you were born, right? The word uh, here actually that describes Moses is the same word that God uses when he made light and saw that it was good. So there's something about Moses Jochebed, she sees the son and she hides her son as long as she can. She does her best to keep him out of the eyesight of Egyptians and maybe even people in their community, but also especially the earshot of anybody. But around three months, and if you have a baby, you know, good luck with that, right? Around three months, she realizes she can no longer hide her son. And so she is faced with a devastating decision. Now, we know, a lot of us, we know the account of, uh, of Exodus, at least some of it, but I want us today to continue to do what we often do here in this church, and that is to go into the text and feel some of the emotions that must have been present. These are real people going through real moments, making real decisions, and so Jochebed, she has a choice to continue to raise her son Moses in her household and do as best she can to keep him quiet and out of sight, but knowing that at any moment the front door can be broken into and her son can be wrenched from her arms and thrown in the Nile. If he cries too loud at night, 
they'll find him. If she can't sue them in time, he'll be taken from her. So that's one decision. Or another one, in an act of, act of desperation, release her baby to the faith, in faith to the will of God, to release him. Verse three, when she could no longer hide him, she got a basket made of papyrus reeds and waterproofed it with tar and pitch. She put the baby in a basket and laid it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile River. And I wish we had more time, if I could, to go through Exodus one and two and how they mirror creation and the flood narrative. And I had to cut so much out right here. I'll just tell you one little thing, that this is the only other place we find this word for ark being used. Noah's ark and this ark, and it's a special kind of ark. This ark has no, no rudder. There's no captain. There's nobody steering it. There's no navigation. It's an ark that floats upon the waters and must rely on God to guide it to whatever is next. The baby's sister, that's Miriam, she stood at a distance watching to see what would happen to Moses. And soon Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river and her attendants walked along the riverbanks. So Miriam goes watching and she sees that this ark is floating down the Nile and eventually reaches the place where the princess of Egypt is bathing. Now, bathing in the Nile is something that would be very common for them back then. We discussed a little bit of the gods and goddesses. Uh, last week we talked about how, but what we didn't talk about, and we're gonna get into this in the 10 plagues, is just how many they had. And there's so many overlapping gods and goddesses to please. Do you remember the god we talked about last week, the god of the flood of the Nile? His name was... Happy, that's right, happy. And right here, we're, there's another God. Um, he's considered one of the most powerful and important in, their, in all of their pantheon. Married to Isis, his name is Osiris. He's the God of the underworld. That's always a good one, right? Also the God of fertility, and there's nothing more fertile than the Nile, which was uh, thought to be what he commanded. So Osiris, the God of fertility, could bring things, new creations down the Nile to them. And lo and behold, the princess sees a basket among the reeds. She sent her maid to go get it for her. And when the princess opened it, she saw the baby. The little boy was crying and she felt sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children. She opens up this ark and the baby is crying. And the famous Bible commentator, J. Vernon McGee, notes that Moses cried at just the right time. The last three months, his mother had tried to keep him from crying so often, lest he be discovered. And right here, he cries as the ark is open. And he says, at the opening of that ark, God joined two things that he created for each other, a baby's cry and a woman's heart. And right there, she was moved in that moment with love and pity for this baby. In verse 7, then the baby's sister approached the princess. Should I go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Now, the ancient historian Josephus has a lot of writings about ancient Jewish history, and a lot of it probably came from their oral traditions passed down, some of it in writing. And there are many things that Josephus writes about that we can authenticate. And there's other things that he writes about that we cannot authenticate. What he writes about in this moment likely came down from their tradition and history. He says the princess found the baby and then she tried to soothe the baby, perhaps by breastfeeding him, and Moses denied. So then as Miriam watched, she offered the baby to each of her maidens and each of them tried to soothe the baby and none of them could soothe this baby. It was at that moment that Miriam stepped forward with her question when they were in the most need. And she says this, this is what he records her saying, perhaps this babe would feed from the breast of his own nation. Can I get him in Hebrew mother? To which in verse 8, the princess says, yes, do, she replied. And the girl went to call and called the baby's mother. Miriam runs off to get Jacobed. Now put yourself in Jacobed's 
shoes at this very moment. Um, this day has been despondent and dark for you. You are likely broken and in tears. You have just put your baby in a basket that you made and released him down a river. Can you imagine the terror of that? Can you imagine that? You need to imagine that. Put yourself where she is until suddenly as she's sitting there, her door bursts open and her daughter comes in. Mother, come quick. The Egyptian princess has found him. And and mother, she's asking for you. They want you to feed him. What we have here is something called God's providence. Providence. God's protective care. When God guides us through certain circumstances. Providence is when God provides for us just what we need at just the right moment. Providence is often something that we don't understand or even see until we look back in hindsight, right? Surely there have been times where you have seen God's providence in your life. At the time when it happened, you might have not thought about it, but you see later that God's hand was involved in helping you. When I was 18 years old, I um, graduated from Roaring Fork High School right here in town. I left my parents' house, and I attended Wayland Baptist University in Plainview, Texas. I was a ministry major, and I had big dreams and also a big, voracious, extroverted personality, which found a lot of fun and a lot of trouble. We've talked about some of this. Mother, you will have to excuse me. I packed 10 years of the college experience into two years, and it was at that point that Wayland Baptist University decided they were no longer interested in being my institution of higher education. (laughs) They asked me, they didn't ask me where I was going, they just asked me not to come there. I returned back here dejected, like a failure. I wanted to go into ministry. I had, I had my whole life planned out. That was the pathway. You go to the Baptist University. You go to the seminary. You get your church. You, you move up. You, 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 that's what you do, and I didn't do it. I gloriously didn't do it. In an amazing way, failed. And it was at this point where I was looking through all my options. There was one that presented itself of someone I had never met, a friend of a friend in Atlanta, Georgia, a far-off place. It sounded like a big city, a place I'd never been before. And I would go there and work in a youth ministry organization. They could not pay me a cent. I would raise all my own support, like like a missionary raising money. And so I spent six months raising $20,000. But there was one thing. I needed a church out there in Atlanta to, you know, to, to take me in, to be a youth pastor, to, to, to be the other side of my training. You know, I'm, I'm raising the support with this organization, but I'm also in a church. I want to be a youth pastor. I want to work in the church. A church has to take me. And so I interviewed with a few churches on the phone, and each church turned me down. Now, I've been a youth pastor for two years, I'd, and it had gone really well, but I, I was not expecting this kind of failure, but I was continuing to be disappointed as each church turned me down. I just needed one church to take a chance and believe in me so I could start this next season and leave Carbondale, the place everyone's trying to get to now, I was trying to get out of then. And I'll never forget my final interview to be a youth pastor. I was in Carbondale. I was on Barber Drive in my parents' living room on the phone. And the phone interview was with this church in Georgia. And during this interview, they told me they had six students in their ministry. Six a one to six ratio, that's really good or really bad depending on how you look at it. I mean, this is a slam dunk. I've, I've been in much larger churches than this. I can, I can pastor six students. Um, I finished the interview, crushed it. Got a call back that they were not interested. They did not think that I was prepared and ready for six students. 
I was devastated. The fact that a church of six students wouldn't even go, well, yeah, we'll, we'll take you for free. Uh, no, no. I, I prayed so hard, I would have given anything, anything for them to have hired me to work at that little church. I was broken. I was despondent. No church could hire me. This organization, they, they, weren't, they couldn't take me in. And so finally, one of the people at the organization said, well, listen, man, uh, I can create a free internship for you at my church. Uh, it wouldn't be paid. And I'm like, I don't, I don't care what it is. Get me there. I was desperate. I wanted to leave. And so I wanted to get on with the life God had me. And so I took the only door that was open to me and I did this free internship at this last minute and it was, a, uh, you know, this small church. And so I got in my little Toyota Tercel Ark. God guide me down there. And that, that, that small church led to a full-time job. And that church of 250 grew to 18,000. And I was mentored by people who've read books that you may have read. And I was blown away. And I experienced things I never could have known. I mean, I was reminiscing about this and this time of my life and how amazing it was thanking God for what he had done. And it just got this, this hilarious now, this hilarious clarity at this point um, that I hadn't like, I didn't succeed my way into a mega church experience. Six people, six students wouldn't hire me. I failed my way into that thing, into Georgia, where no one would hire me. I prayed that God would have those smaller churches hire me. And he didn't answer my prayer. What he did do by his providence is connect me with people in a place that would take me and educate me and build in me. And I would experience things that I never, ever, in, with all of my abilities, could have ever designed and made happen. And I floated down there to Georgia, unaware that what God was going to guide me to and build in me. And all that was going to happen that I would need for 20 years later. God's providence is when he weaves redemption and beauty into our story when we are unaware of it. When we're thinking we are maybe failing our way into something and people, doors are like, the whole door opening and close thing, that's a different uh, conversation because doors do open and close by the nature of doors, okay? It's not always God. But here's what I've noticed. <laughs> is that God has worked in my life in some ways in the past. When I look back and I see how amazing he has been and things that I have prayed for, thankfully we're a no. And I think in your life, you can see the places where his providence, his hand has been upon you. And here's a good challenge for you this week. If you have time, you want to take the time. This would be worth your, your while. Is to sit down and look back at your life and say, God, where has your providence helped me, guided me, taken me? And then the next question is, God, where's your providence now? Because those are some places we usually don't recognize it. Is in the present. As God's providence, even at this moment, is still guiding you and still working in your story. Well, Miriam and, and Jacobed, they're involved in this providence as Moses ends up with the princess and then back in his mother's arms, verse nine, take this baby, the princess says, and nurse him for me. I will pay you for your help. So the woman took her baby home and nursed him. Earlier that day, Jacobed had, had put her baby down with tears in her eyes and probably thought that was the last time I'll ever see my son. And later that very day, he's placed back into her arms. He's no longer in danger. He's protected by the royal family. And guess what? Jochebed is now compensated to do what she was made to do, to raise her own son. Can you imagine the tears of joy as his mother brought the son back to her home that she had put in a basket earlier that day? The dream that she had that she had let go of and she brings it back to her house and she brings it in and shows Amram. And um, can you imagine that night as she soothes him and she feeds him 
and she puts him down in his bed. Can you imagine the reality that they are facing in those moments, Amram and Jacobed, as they, they celebrated and just cried tears as God's providence had brought what they thought was lost back to them? 10, verse 10. We were skip, this skips a lot of time here. It says, later when the boy was older, his mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who then adopted him as her own son. She adopts Moses as her full son, daughter, son of a princess. The princess named him Moses, for she exclaimed, I lifted him out of the water. Now the sages who study this time and culture believe that he was probably around the age of three or four when he had been brought back based on the age of weaning back then when she was done feeding him. So he's three or four years old. Let's imagine that's his age. Now, can you imagine what he experienced in that time? Again, that's one sentence in the, in the Bible. But, but for three to four years, Moses grows up with Aaron and Miriam and his dad, Amram, pouring into him, his mom, loving on him. For three to four years, let's say four years, he gets, he gets, they're teaching him, they're loving him, they're showing him culture. What, what, what is he learning? What did he get? What, what, what does he remember? As he, and then you gotta think about him being handed off to the, the princess and how that goes. Raised for three to four years in your, your parents' house and then handed off to a, a whole new reality. You know, Jacobed and Abraham, Amram, they had released their son once before in an ark and received him back, but this time they are sending their son to the royal palace. And it's a palace where he will receive the greatest education on the planet at this time. The Egyptians of this ancient age were far beyond the other civilizations. Their advancements in language and in engineering alone, chemistry and in mathematics, the first sundial, the first calendar, listen to this. Based on the cycles of sun and moon, the Egyptian calendar was divided into 12 months of 30 days along with five additional days at the end of the year to bring the total to 365. Things that still last to this age. Moses, a prince of Pharaoh, is spared nothing in his upbringing. And in his education, he was raised up to be a ruler of some sort. In fact, Josephus has something else to tell us here, the historian. And this, this is a pretty re amazing revelation, if it's true. He says Moses, he was, you know, he was adopted by an Egyptian princess. He tells us that this Pharaoh of this time had no sons. He only had daughters. And a daughter um, had an adopted baby boy, Moses, whom she loved. And he talks about the time when she brought this baby to her father, the Pharaoh, and presented him to her father as a potential future heir to the throne. Moses being future Pharaoh and the father sitting on the throne, according to Josephus, agreed that Moses would someday be in next in line for the crown of Pharaoh. Now, we can't substantiate that snippet at all. The implications would be fascinating, but what we do know, regardless of whether that's true or it's not, we do know that Moses was raised in luxury, in the palace, as a prince, with everything that came with it, which also meant he was schooled on all the idols and gods and goddesses that Egypt had to offer. But if you begin to get in the story and feel the story and read what it's saying, I believe there's something curious going on in the heart and mind of Moses. I mean, he's a prince, maybe an heir, He's a royal with everything he wants at his disposal, but there's something in his heart that is perhaps conflicted. And perhaps it was that providence of God. Perhaps it was that three to four years with his mother and father. And the next verse when we get to in Exodus, it's gonna skip forward till when he's 40 years old. But we see something in Acts 7 that speaks about this very time. Acts 7, Stephen tells us in verse 22, 
Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and in action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. So then we move back to Exodus 2, verse 11. He's 40 years old. Many years later, when Moses had grown up, he went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews. He saw how hard they were forced to work. Notice the language here. As Moses writes about this time in his life, uh, he went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews. Now, now, either Moses grew up believing somehow that he was an Egyptian. Maybe he remembered his childhood as he grew up. Perhaps it, it was revealed to him. However it was, he knows at this point, and perhaps he's known the whole time, he's a Hebrew living in luxury and authority. While he goes out and sees his own people living in poverty and slavery. Can you imagine how this would conflict you? I mean, living as a prince to the people who enslaved your mother and father and brother and sister and people and seeing this around you all the time. During this visit, it says, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. He looked this way and he looked that way to make sure no one was watching. And then Moses killed the Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. Moses is moved at the sight of an Egyptian beating his, it says, fellow Hebrew. Now, this isn't a rare activity, a Hebrew being beaten. They're beaten every day. They're beaten throughout the day. They've likely been beaten around him. But this day, Moses sees this and he is moved to action. It says here, doesn't it? It says he looked this way and he looked that way. He looked left and he looked right before killing this Egyptian. He, did, he looked this way and that way before he did something that he maybe shouldn't have done. But while Moses looked to his left and looked to his right, there's one way he didn't look, and that was up. This is the nature of sin, secret sin especially. We are masters of looking horizontally to compare ourselves to other people to see if what we're going to be doing is okay, to see if other people are watching, to see what they would endorse, to see who we're with. We look this way and that way, but rarely do we look up before we act. And I think one thing we could do here is the next time before we rush into a, a secret or private sin, when you look left and you look right, pause and look up to the God who does see you, who wants to resource you and bring this issue, uh, you, to, you to bring this issue to him before you act. Well, Moses looks to the left, looks to the right. The coast seems clear, and he murders this Egyptian. It says he buries him in the sand, which is another truth about the pattern of sin. Whenever there's secret sin, there must be a cover-up. He looks this way. He looks that way. He acts, and then he must cover it up. Oftentimes, we think that um, we do the same thing. We look this way, that way, sin. There must be a cover-up. Moses assumes his actions are secret. Verse 13, the next day when Moses went out to visit his people again, he goes back out. He saw two Hebrew men fighting. He says, why are you beating up your friend? Moses said to the one who had started the fight. And the man replied, who anointed you our prince and judge? Are you gonna kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? Now Moses thought he was stepping up. He, he, he thought, you know what? I was Batman last night, you know, stepping out in the streets and getting some justice. The caped crusader Moses. And, it, but now, and now he's like, now I'm stepping up to, to, to bring some peace to these two brothers of mine who are out here fighting. Excuse me, brothers, it's me. Why are you fighting? And the guy turns to him and says, are you gonna kill us like you killed that Egyptian? The secret is out. This struck him with fear. Then Moses was afraid, thinking, 
everyone knows what I did. And sure enough, word made it to Pharaoh who heard what had happened and wanted and tried to kill Moses. So Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian. Moses' royal prince flees to Midian, a desolate, a wilderness place. It's fascinating. Moses is a Hebrew. He's rescued from death by God's providence and he's raised uh, with his mother and father for his early years. He's sent off to the palace where he's raised by the Egyptian uh, princess as a prince. He's educated, he's pampered, he's comforted, he's elevated, perhaps even anointed as an ex-pharaoh. But in Moses' heart, there's this growing discontent. He realizes that as a Hebrew, he's being raised Egyptian and he sees these Hebrews every day of his life. He always has. He has personal Hebrew slave attendants. He has Hebrew slaves prepare his meals. Hebrew slaves change his linens and his garments. Hebrew slaves build the temples and the buildings that he sees. Hebrew slaves are on the side. They scatter to the sides of the road when he walks down it. Hebrew slaves throughout the kingdom, they bow low and avert their eyes when Moses, a Hebrew, walks by. They're beaten. They're broken. They're used and abused by his adopted family that he has fortune and luxury in. When this happens, royal food can turn bitter in your mouth when you know your people are eating scraps. Fine linens can itch at night when your mother who raised you is sleeping in rags. That royal robe that you wear can feel constricting across your back when everywhere you go, you see the scars of the beatings on the backs of your brothers and sisters. Moses is perhaps the most conflicted person on the planet at this time, living in one reality while seeing the mistreatment every day, the abuse of his heritage. And finally, it seems he could take it no longer. He strikes the Egyptian, saving the Hebrew slave, and buries the evidence. Can you imagine him returning home that night? Like, what have I done? There was, the, there, was there something right about it? It seems like there was because he decides to go out the next day. Like, let's go see what else. I'm, I'm going to go back out and do something else for these people. Uh, he's taken a life. He took an Egyptian life. And, and he's a prince. He chose to step between a slave and a slave master. I believe, and we, we'll read about this, that a purpose began to rise up in Moses' heart in that place. Maybe I can rescue my people. What, what if I'm Pharaoh someday? I'll set them free. What can I do until then? I will do what I can. I will save my people. Moses thought of himself as their rescuer, but his own people didn't recognize him. Acts 7, Stephen reveals this in verse 24. Moses saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him, killing the Egyptian. Moses thought his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them but they did not. We see that he had a purpose in his heart, that God was gonna use him to rescue the people. What's interesting is that Moses saw this Egyptian taskmaster beating a Hebrew slave, and what did he do? He stepped between them as mediator, as rescuer, as savior. He stood between the Egyptians and the Israelites, and he fought for their freedom. We're gonna see that that is Moses, that's his future purpose. That is his purpose. That place is his calling. That's where he's called to. He's actually fulfilling God's purpose by standing between the powers of Egypt and the slaves of Israel and declaring freedom for his people. That is his purpose. Moses is correct in God's purpose, but he's off in God's timing. 
Moses has much to learn before he will ever stand between an Egyptian and a Hebrew again. Moses had a purpose, but he needed preparation. And so I ask, what about you? Perhaps there was a time where you stepped out or stepped up into a place that you thought was purpose and you absolutely failed. Perhaps there was a time in your life where you stepped into something and you lost everything. You were embarrassed perhaps. But what if it wasn't that you were off on your purpose? You were off on God's timing. That he wants to prepare you, to mature you, to grow you. The you that failed then wasn't ready for the complexity and the weight of the purpose that he has for you someday. You thought the failure meant he wasn't calling you, but instead it means that he's preparing you for something. You see, Moses stepped up into a purpose he thought God had for him and he failed. And what did it cost him? You have to see this. It cost him everything. He, the only thing he took with him was what was on his back. Every relationship, every scent, every comfort, everything, every promise, every hope, every throne or crown, everything that he, even the hope of having a purpose of rescuing his people was gone in one day. He lost it all and he left it for the wilderness. We'll find him there washed up and broken as a person who, who, who has little desire to step out in faith again. Moses was taken to the wilderness. Well, all, all his schooling, all his, his paradigms and perceptions begin to fade away. Where he would find out that, that it wasn't the royal pedigree or the might that he needed, that it was actually faith, a dependence on God and God's might that he needed most. You see, Moses thought in his immaturity that he had everything he needed to set his people free. He thought he had everything he needed to complete the purpose God had for him. Moses had to learn that all that he had brought to the table was for naught compared to the, the power of God. Moses needed more than anything to meet God face to face. Moses needed to understand who was greater than Pharaoh and who was greater than his own self. Moses needed to hear a sacred name. Moses needed to feel the warmth of a sacred fire. Moses needed to have his spirit quickened by the presence of God. And he will in the coming weeks. But like most things in life, the wilderness lasts longer than we want. These seasons last longer than we could ever hope. But in the wilderness, God does for us more than we could ever imagine. And for 40 years, Moses is going to be in the next phase of his life in the wilderness, unlearning and relearning new things about power himself and purpose and faith. Listen, God may have a purpose for you. But most often he takes us through the wilderness to prepare us for it. Why? Because before God could use Moses to get the people out of Egypt, God had to get the Egypt out of Moses. And there are places in your life that God needs to set you free of the idolatry and those things that, you, that hold you back. There are places in your life that God needs to move in you and through you to set you free before you're ready for your purpose. He wants to grow you. God wants to grow your character and your integrity. God has a calling on your life, but your character can't yet sustain it. God has a calling on your life, but your faith can't yet contain it all. And so God in the wilderness seasons, as painful as they are, 
He wants us to let go of those, some of those things that we think matter so much and to make us so great so we can see how much we need him, so that our character can hold our purpose, so that our faith can sustain our destiny that he has for us. This right here is one of the hardest lessons I ever had to learn. Well past the breaking and all the things I've been through in my life, there was this hard wilderness season where God used some painful wilderness to, to break my pride, to break my bitterness, to break my ego, to break my selfish ambitions because the man I was wasn't ready for what God had for me. Now, I'm, I'm still a complete mess and in the process and need God's grace every day like all of us, but thanks be to God, I, I'm not who I was and neither are you in so many ways. But God is gonna bring you to a new place. He's preparing you today for something he has for you in the future. You may be in a wilderness of your own. Some of you, I'm speaking right to you. You're in a wilderness of, of relationships. You're in a wilderness of finances, a professional wilderness, purpose. What is next? When will I ever find what God has for me? When will I find that special someone, the desires of my heart, these things? You may be in a wilderness right now in your own life. And you're wondering why? And where's God? Where are you? It's been longer than I ever would have hoped. We see in Moses' life when he goes out to the wilderness, it's 40 years and it's difficult. And it's, he wondered a lot of where God was, I'm sure. Perhaps you had a purpose at one point. Perhaps you thought you had a purpose. But now, where you are today, it's out of sight. You can't see it anymore. It's too far gone. If you're in a wilderness, I want to assure you of something that we find over and over and over and over in God's word. If you're in a wilderness season, God's preparing you in it. He's building something in you for what's next in that season. And so often, all we want to do is get out of the wilderness. And what we need to do is get something out of it and get it into us. Moses had zero clue what God was gonna do through him in 40 years later. He had zero clue. But the end result is one of the most beautiful and powerful stories I've ever seen. And God wants to do this with your story as well. God wants to write redemption and purpose into your story where you only see wilderness and loss and lack of purpose. So if you're in a wilderness, this is not the time to just try to scramble and hustle. It's the time to seek God more deeply than you ever have before. It's a time like Moses to, 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 get, to get to know God's name, to get to know his, his face, to get to know his voice, to get to, get to know him unlike any other time. It's, it's, it's not time to fight against the wilderness. It's time to embrace the lesson of it because you'll need it for what's next. Because the preparation leads to a purpose and the desert is gonna lead you to a destiny and the wilderness, what it does is it leads you to intimacy with God. And that intimacy is what you need more than anything for what he's preparing you for. So in the wilderness, move close, move closer to God, as close as you can because he has something for you in it and it's his heart. It's your faith. So perhaps you're in a wilderness and I wanna pray for you today. For those of you who, wherever you are and whatever type of wilderness that you are in, as I look around and see so many of you to know where God has you right now and to know you don't know what's next for you. Let me pray a prayer over you. Father God, God of Moses, God, your provision took a baby. 
to a princess. And we're going to see where it takes this man. But Father, you took him through the wilderness to prepare him for his purpose. And Father, there are many listening to my voice right now who find themselves in a wilderness. And Father, they're wondering where you are and where you have been. I pray in the name of your son, Jesus, that you're, you're, you would show them your face, that they would hear your voice. I pray that, Father, you would ignite a fire within them to seek you and know you in a new way. So the Father, in the wilderness, they find intimacy with you. I pray you would strengthen in the name of Jesus those hearing this who are in a wilderness season. Father, that you are preparing us for our purpose. That what we think is breaking us is building us, Father. I pray these things in your name. Amen.